This is Guns and Butter. Because 9-11 was basically carried out to change American public opinion in such a way that the United States would, uh, you know, send its troops over to the Middle East on, a, on an open-ended campaign like they are now. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Christopher Bolin. Today's show, 9-11 and the Politics of War. Christopher Bolin is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. Upon graduation from high school in Cook County, Illinois, he spent the next three years traveling extensively throughout Europe and the Middle East, finally settling in both the kibbutz in Israel and in Norway, where he studied Egyptian, Biblical Hebrew, and Norwegian at the University of Oslo. He is a graduate of the University of California in history with an emphasis on Israel-Palestine. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. His travels and studies of German, Spanish, Norwegian, Swedish, Hebrew, and Arabic languages have helped him analyze international politics and events. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, and Solving 9-11, The Articles. Christopher Boleyn, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. You have a new book out, Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, in which you describe 9-11 as an unsolved crime of terrorism and mass murder in whose name wars have been waged, governments overthrown, an untold number of lives sacrificed, and which ushered in an endless war on terror with its draconian security laws. What can you tell us about the crime itself? Well, it's precisely what you said. It's, it's an unsolved crime. And a lot of people don't understand it or appreciate that, that 9-11 was a crime of mass murder, first and foremost. Uh, and some 3,000 people were killed on 9-11. Yet, despite that, it, it remains an unsolved crime. And not only is it an unsolved crime, it's, it's a crime that wasn't investigated because the uh, crucial evidence was uh, picked up and destroyed, uh, namely the steel at the World Trade Center and the engine parts and uh, evidence that would have proven what happened to the Twin Towers because, you know, the overwhelming majority of people who died on 9-11 died in those towers. So it's an unsolved crime. And the American people have been fed a um, complex web of lies that have been spun around an unsolved crime. In your book, you say that the crime of 9-11 was not meant to be solved. What evidence is there that the crime of 9-11 has not been solved? For instance, what can you tell us about the investigation into the events of 9-11? Well, that's a very good question. The thing is, is that the, the investigation of 9-11, being a terror atrocity, fell upon the shoulders of the uh, Department of Justice, namely the FBI, and the criminal division of the Department of Justice, which was headed um, at the time by Michael Chertoff, who later became the uh, Homeland Security Czar. Um, but... He was responsible for prosecuting the, the terrorist crimes, and that would have meant he was also responsible for the FBI's investigation, because the FBI is the agency um, of the Department of Justice, which has the obligation to gather and collect the evidence. Um, but as everybody uh, who followed the events closely saw, uh, first the FBI um, kicked the uh, New York police off the scene of the, of the crime, then they removed the fire department, or vice versa. Um, but then 
the FBI allowed all of the steel to be picked up and taken to a couple junkyards in New Jersey where these crucial pieces of steel were cut up into very small pieces of uh, 60 inches or shorter, mixed in with other steel, and sent to distant Asian ports where it was melted down. Um, this was done before the steel could be examined by metal experts who could have seen exactly what happened to the uh, towers, because it, it needs to be understood that uh, towers of that sort, you know, steel-framed towers, have never collapsed due to fire. Now, when you say that the FBI took the fire department and the police off of the investigation, what do you mean? Well, first, uh, you know, the, the fire department was looking for its lost brothers in, in Ground Zero. And if I remember correctly, first the FBI told the police not to let the firefighters return to, the, uh, to Ground Zero. That was a few weeks after 9-11. Then, uh, another week later, the FBI locked out the, the police department, the NYPD, so that the um, FBI had complete jurisdiction of the crime scene. And this is the same in, in uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and at the, uh, at the Pentagon. For example, at the Pentagon, the FBI uh, took over the, the crime scene entirely, and even when the engineers came to do a walk-around and collect evidence uh, you know, for their report, there was the intersection of the Pentagon, that's where the big hole was on the uh, C-ring, which was barricaded off by the FBI, and they were not allowed to enter into that ring at all. So, and in, in Pennsylvania, the FBI um, took over complete control of the crime scene and, and locked out the, uh, the county coroner, uh, who was not allowed to, uh, to, to visit the scene, although Pennsylvania state law actually mandates that he has control of the crime scene. Much of your book includes evidence of an extensive cover-up. You write that there were three phases of the cover-up, access to evidence, media interpretation of the event, and related litigation, all of which was tightly controlled. Let's start with access to evidence and former Assistant Attorney General Michael Chertoff, whom you have mentioned. What can you tell us about him, and what were his responsibilities? Right. Well, as the Assistant Attorney General um, and head of the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice, it was Michael Sheratoff's um, duty to uh, investigate and prosecute the crimes of 9-11. He was to bring the guilty to trial, and with the evidence that the FBI had accumulated and collected, he was to build a case against these terrorists. Well, obviously that never happened. No terrorists were taken to trial. Um, Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan, they say, and the mastermind of 9-11, who they self-confessed, his name is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, he remains in the uh, gulag in Guantanamo, uh, far from any U.S. legal process. But um, Michael Sheratoff was responsible for this, and, and what he did is that he actually allowed the city of New York to take over the, um, the task of, of cleaning up the site, what they called recycling the steel. And this was done with no respect for the, um, the value of the steel as forensic evidence. And so the steel, as I said, was quickly chopped up and shipped to Asia, where it was melted down. And likewise, the FBI you know, uh, took control of the evidence and the crime scenes in all three locations. And as I said, they, they didn't let other authorities, other investigators in. And so the access to the evidence was tightly controlled. And after the fact, Michael Sheratoff remained in the position 
where he actually could could determine what evidence could be seen by whom. And and that's what he did. His his uh, his control over the evidence continued into the time when he became the uh, czar of Homeland Security. And what uh, what did the confiscated evidence include? Now you've mentioned uh, steel beams from the towers. What what all physical evidence was there? Well, there was that. Um, that's very important because the collapse of the uh, towers um, is unexplained and was clearly uh, some form of explosive demolition. And the steel would have um, shown all kinds of uh, tracks and, and anomalies. It would, have, it would have told the experts what happened to the steel, what caused the structure to collapse. And, I mean, a lot of anomalies, a lot of mysteries about the steel because you had steel actually vaporizing, um, steel beams actually vaporizing. Then, secondly, there was the, um, the parts of the aircraft that fell, of whatever aircraft we're talking about. There was a, a, a jet engine that fell um, in New York City, a couple, a couple pieces of landing gear, and, and you know, aircraft parts that have tracked parts on them. They're called time-tracked parts, and those parts are unique. And, and you can take that engine apart, you can take that landing gear apart, and examine it. And by just simply looking at the numbers, you can determine what aircraft that was on, when it was put on, etc. And then, of course, there's the videotapes that were confiscated near the Pentagon from the gas station and the hotel that overlooked the Pentagon crash site. And these, uh, these videotapes were confiscated on the day of 9-1-1 and uh, have not been seen by the public or the press um, since. Was Michael Chertoff involved in the investigation into the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center? That's a very good question. Yes, he was involved in the he was involved in the prosecution. He was the uh, uh, attorney general for the District of uh, New Jersey, and he was involved in the prosecution of the uh, of the, the, the 1993 bombing. And uh, there again, you you had uh, you know a lot of strange things happening. For example, the FBI um, was involved in the creation of the truck bomb that exploded, you know, under the building, and the. The FBI was paying uh, informants, uh, you know, an Egyptian man, a million dollars for his participation in this event, which was a very contrived, 1993 was a very contrived uh, false flag terror attack. But its, its main importance, I think, was to prime, to prime the pump, if you will, to, to put into the public imagination the idea that Arab terrorists were trying to uh, destroy the World Trade Center. Can you give us some background on the people and the companies who handled the evidence from Ground Zero? Yeah, well, for the uh, World Trade Center um, destruction and that, that evidence, that there was uh, uh, two companies in New Jersey. Um, there was a Hugo Noy uh, metal management company and uh, another another um, company, but Hugo Noy took the, the greatest load of, of steel. But what they did is that um, when they came to the site, they said that the only thing that exists, the only thing that remains from the uh, attacks on the World Trade Center is steel and dust. And that's very important to understand. There were no concrete slabs. There were no um, remains of, of what had been in the, in the towers. There was just all these twisted, mangled pieces of steel, um, a mountain of it. And then there was the dust that was spread all over, you know, Brooklyn and Lower Manhattan, and, and went into the uh, the water. Well, the dust was very important. So the analysis of the dust that was done by uh, uh, Professor Stephen Jones at, at BYU 
uh, found that there was uh, uh, remnants, uh, fragments of, of explosive nanothermite. And this is very important because this nanothermite was extremely energetic. That's to say that it was more explosive. It carried more energy per gram than any known explosive used in demolition. This is a very thin coating, kind of like a layer of paint. Um, and then the steel, um, that, that was sent very quickly off to a couple junkyards on trucks that were monitored very closely. And, and at these junkyards, the, the steel was cut into very small pieces and, and sent to Asia. But the thing is that both these junkyards uh, are, are Zionist-owned junkyards. That is that they're, um, the owners of these, of these two junkyards um, are closely tied to the state of Israel. And the, the two men that worked at Hugo Noy in their international trading division had been sent over to, uh, to New York, New Jersey, just a couple of years prior to that to set up a, a, a trading network whereby the steel would be, would be traded to Asia. I mean, that's very unusual because the steel was, the steel from the World Trade Center was being um, cut up and recycled at the time when the steel was at its lowest uh, value. In, in the last 50 years, it was extremely cheap, and so to take this steel and to and to send it on ship, you know, halfway around the world, um, was not the most efficient way to uh, to uh, recycle it. It would have made more sense for them to have recycled it in local mills in Ohio or Pennsylvania. But you see, if they had done that, then the steel would have remained um, available for inspection, and that's what they didn't want to happen. Was Mark Rich, the businessman uh, pardoned by Clinton, involved with the evidence at Ground Zero? And if so, in what capacity? Yes, Mark Rich. Um, Mark Rich is the person who sent. Mark Rich is the person who sent over these two young uh, Belgian Jewish uh, metal traders, who um, who ran Hugo Noy's international trading desk, and and Mark Rich was pardoned, as you said by Bill Clinton on the very, one of the very last things he did while he was still in office. And it's interesting that Eric Holder uh, worked on that as well. Eric Holder uh, was supporting the, the pardon of Mark Rich um, during that time. And uh, Mark Rich, of course, uh, lives in Switzerland and, and operates. Uh, he's an Israeli citizen and, and works very closely with the Mossad. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Bolin. Today's show, 9-11 and the Politics of War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about litigation brought by the many people who suffered from the attacks? Who were the appointed federal judges who oversaw litigation? And could you describe how victims and their families were treated? Yeah, that's a very good question. The 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 um, the victims of 9/11, the relatives of 9/11, um, you know, led by Ellen Mariani, who filed the first wrongful death lawsuit for the loss of her husband. There were thousands of them, and what happened was that, of course, the United States government created a compensation fund, and through that compensation fund, something like 97% of the families settled completely out of court. They took, the, they took the payment that they received from um, the, the, the compensation fund, and, and they gave up their right to uh, any sort of litigation. There were, however, about 96 families who did not want to take the government money but wanted to uh, litigate and entered into a, uh, a tort litigation. 
that was overseen by a judge, a district judge, Alvin K. Hellerstein, in the court in Manhattan. And um, all of those cases were settled out of court, all 96, even though there were several families who were, who were determined to, to absolutely stick it out. Every single family uh, case was settled out of court, which, which was a very big uh, heartbreak for, for all the families because what they really wanted is that they wanted to have some accountability um, and responsibility. Uh, somebody found guilty, somebody found responsible for their loss, for the loss of their loved one, and that hasn't happened. Uh, Ellen Mariani's case is still not closed. She's still trying, um, and she's, her case is, uh, she's going to take her case to the U.S. Supreme Court, and part of her uh, complaint, her appeal, is that Judge um, Alvin K. Hellerstein has a conflict of interest, and that's the conflict of interest that his son um, lives in Israel and is a lawyer uh, with a, a law firm that represents the defendant in the 9-11 litigation who was in charge of the passenger screening at the uh, Newark Airport and at Boston Airport that day, or that, that company's ICTS. Well, yes, I was about to ask you about that. What is International Consultants on Targeted Security, or ICTS, and why was this company a key defendant in tort litigation? Right. ICTS is a, uh, an Israeli company that's based in, in Amsterdam or near Amsterdam in Holland. And it's a company that was created by uh, uh, former Israeli security experts and people who worked with El Al security and Mossad people. Israeli security people, and um, in the 70s, I guess it started, that the Israelis started moving into airport security all around Europe and, and finally to the United States of America. And this ICTS company was headed by a, a man named um, Menachem Atzmon, and Menachem Atzmon is actually a convicted criminal in the state of Israel for his um, uh, involvement in illegal um, transfers to the Likud party. Um, of which he was a member, and he was involved in this criminal conduct with Ehud Olmert, who later became the Prime Minister of the State of Israel. Well, Atzmon's company, ICTS, bought a company from St. Louis called Huntley. It's Huntley, H-U-N-T-L-E-I-G-H. Huntley USA was the passenger screening company at Boston's Logan Airport and at Newark and at actually all of the major airports in the United States on 911. But there it's very important because um, Huntley USA was responsible for allowing these 19 Arabs uh, hijackers, if, if they got on the plane, uh, it allowed them to get on the plane, you know, and they were carrying box cutters and everything else. Although these 19 Arab hijackers' names do not appear on the passenger list, um, this company has the videotapes and has the responsibility um, of having let these people on according to the official version of events. But what happened was Judge Hellerstein, um, his son, as I said, uh, represents the parent company of ICTS in Israel. So what Hellerstein did is he, he removed, he dismissed this company from the litigation before, the, before all the cases were settled. So this company got a walk anyway. They, they, they were dismissed from the case. Well, how could the judge dismiss the defendant from the case before the cases came to trial? How did that work? Well... You'd have, to, you'd have to look at the, the whole thing about the 9-11 litigation actually was very, very secretive. It was, it was reported even in the New York papers. Um, uh, and to access the court documents was rather difficult using these various 
um, systems that they have. Because this was meant, 9-11 tort litigation was meant to be done behind closed doors. I mean, for example, every single family that settled um, signed a, a gag order, um, you know, barring them from discussing their settlement or anything. It's, uh, that's the tool that they use, this, this uh, divide and conquer. They, it was a war of attrition, I call it, against the 9-11 relatives. And the, uh, the relatives aren't allowed to talk. And, and, and what they did is many of the things were done were extremely um, unpleasant, but what the 9-11 relatives will tell you is that they were pressured into, into settling out of court. Every single family was pressured to settle out of court, and they were threatened, they were cajoled, everything, but they all wound up settling out of court. And that's, that's the most amazing thing, because in a, in a society like the United States, you would expect that at least one of these families would have been able to hold out and get a trial. But as it is, there there will be no 9/11 trial um, for the uh, for the relatives of 9/11. It looks like never, unless there's a a complete change of events. Well, I can understand how they were pressured, let's say, but how else were they prevented from going to trial? Wasn't there at least one family that was absolutely and totally determined to go to trial? How was that trial prevented? Well, there were several. Uh, the, the, the last case, the last outstanding case uh, that really had good standing was the Bavis family from Boston. Their, their son, Mark Bavis, was a, a hockey scout for the L.A. Kings, I think it was, and he died on, on that plane. And, and the Bavis family, um, they were holding out for a trial. But what happened was that um, uh, using, using all kinds of procedures, the judge had narrowed down their case. Uh, so that it was, it, it no longer was even pertinent. You know, he, he, he constricted the the discussion of the Bavis case to such a point where, where um, uh, you know, using various legal procedures and laws and precedents, so that, that it was no longer even worthwhile for them to continue, and so they they gave it up. Um, but this was this happened to, to everybody. You know, this happened to the um, 96 other families, and so. The Davis family was just the last one standing. Could you talk about Kroll Associates, Martian McLennan, and American International Group, or AIG? Mm-hmm. Who, who controlled these companies, and what were the relationships between them? That's a very good question. The, the first plane that, that hit the World Trade Center flew right into the data center of the Marsh, McLennan, uh, and Kroll uh, Group, and um, this is a company. The the, the Kroll Associates and and Marsha McLennan are companies that are owned by um, Mr. Kroll, Jules Kroll, and Maurice Greenberg. Maurice Greenberg also happens to be the uh, the CEO, uh, was the CEO and 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 the head of um, AIG, which is the big insurance company uh, that insured the. Big, big companies like uh, Goldman Sachs and Bank of America, um, and was at the center of the bailout in 2008 and 2009. Uh, something like over $180 billion was paid to uh, AIG because we were told that this was a company that was too big to fail. And that money then was distributed to the uh, banks that it had insured, like uh, Goldman Sachs was the largest recipient of this uh, taxpayer um, bailout money. Now, the uh, first plane went directly into the office, uh, the computer center of uh, Marsh McLennan 
Marsh, the Marsh Company, which was run by Mr. Greenberg's son. And uh, these companies are, are tied to both 911 in a very serious, a very close way, and they're tied very closely, especially uh, AIG, to the bailout. And in this way, you can see that there's a, uh, a relationship between uh, 911 and the bailout, um, for example, through, through Maurice Greenberg and AIG. And, and what happened is that Marshall McLennan, one of their key players was uh, a man named Bremer, uh, Louis Bremer. And he was sent over, after the invasion of Iraq, he was sent over to uh, basically to manage the country. He was the American uh, pro-counsel or, or envoy, if you will, who was the governor of the state of Iraq, of the country of Iraq, uh, for about three years. And, and what's interesting is during that entire time that, that um, Mr. Bremer was over there, um, there was no, no, no accounting, no measuring of the amount of oil that was being um, loaded onto tankers. Yeah, Paul Bremer, I guess he was the yeah. former administrator of the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq. Now, right. you're saying that when he was in charge of Iraq, that oil was being taken out? I thought there was a big problem with getting oil out of Iraq at that time. Well, there, were, there weren't any real problems. I mean, the, the oil was being sold, but the oil was, being, um, was not being metered. It was, it was not being measured. It was uh, tankers were coming and, and being filled up. Uh, the first tanker that was filled up was a, a British petroleum tanker that was filled up, um, but the, you know, the amount of oil that was being um, measured out, that metering was not being done. And, and the uh, Iraqis who were you know, in the government were protesting that vigorously, um, and Mr. Bremer said, well, we'll fix it, we'll fix it. But it never got fixed. Um, up until the time he left, it was not fixed. And, and this is very interesting because, you see, now Iraq is now becoming a, a major exporter of oil again. And there's a story in the paper um, last weekend in the New York Times. It's, it's about Tony Hayward, the, the uh, disgraced head of British Petroleum, BP, who was responsible or was the head of the company when they had the blowout in the, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. And this uh, article in the New York Times is called The Quest for Oil and Redemption. And, and what Mr. Hayward is now doing, he's heading a company called Janil Energy in Kurdistan. That's the northern part of Iraq that's kind of autonomous. And he's, he's exploring and he's going to uh, exploit the oil resources there in Kurdistan um, basically for Nathaniel Rothschild. Mr. Rothschild is the one who's bankrolling the company. And uh, Mr. Hayward, his partner, put in a few million pounds of their own. But... The war in Iraq uh, was very much for the oil, and, and that's the strategy. That's the, real, that's the real reason why the United States went in there and occupied that country, so that we could, so that we could, so we could seize the country and the oil could be controlled by the, the people who are behind the war. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Bolin. Today's show, 9-11 and the Politics of War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And what is Amdocs? Now, that's another company that had some sort of relationship to the events of 9-11, right? Yeah, Amdocs is a company that is very much involved in uh, telephone documenting of numbers and uh, who called what number and how long they spoke. And it's a data company for, you know, telephone billing. And, and it's an Israeli company. It's a company that was, uh, you know, it's involved in, in telephone 
telephone billing. Um, but it's not the only one. There's there's an uh, other company like Converse, which was um, was also involved in, in the 9-11 thing. Is that these companies um, are involved in uh, Converse, for example, has a company called Odigo, which uh, is an instant sort of instant messaging text messaging uh, service over over any platform, over email or SMS or or your pager, what have you. And Odigo employees received, um, uh, you know, text messages a couple hours before 9/11, warning them not to go to work on 9/11, and that there would be a, a catastrophe at the at the Twin Towers. And the vice president of the company, um, um, Diamandis, Mr. Diamandis, he actually told the media in Israel that the warnings um, were precise to the minute. And this is thought to be the mechanism by which um, the, the Hebrew-speaking or the Israelis who would have been at the World Trade Center were warned not to go. And it's interesting that now that Israel is preparing for some sort of conflict with Iran, they're using the same system. They're using this text message system of warning uh, to tell the people, you know, of any sort of uh, urgent uh, condition that they have to be aware of. And, of course, all kinds of people were... Uh being warned before the fact as well, right? I mean, I can, mm-hmm. well, I read about a lot of a, a lot of people that received warnings. Um, who was Dov Zakheim, and what was his role as comptroller at the Pentagon? Right. Dov Zakheim's a very interesting fellow. Um, I'm not even sure where he was born. He, uh, he may have been born in Israel. Uh, he may have been born in Britain. Uh, if I recall, his his place of birth is not given in the uh, Who's Who article under his name, and he he spent a lot of his youth in in uh, England, where he studied at the uh, Jews College, and he became a rabbi. He's an Orthodox rabbi, and he was the comptroller the comptroller at the Pentagon uh, for a couple of years before 911 and a couple of years after 911. That during that period, and and if you remember, on September 10th, 2001. Uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld uh, made an announcement that something like $2.3 trillion of Pentagon transactions were unaccounted for. And uh, as we, we know, the uh, the plane or whatever, the bomb that struck the missile, whatever that struck the Pentagon, struck this accounting office where this accounting was being done, where these records were, were you know, being figured out. Um, but Doug Zachheim... Uh, Played plays a very key role in 911 because so much of uh, so much of 911 involves the military, and uh, you know contracts uh, that were that were given out. Like there was a contract given to a, a, a demolition company called LVI, um, who did work in the World Trade Center for a couple of years prior to 911, supposedly on asbestos abatement work in the Twin Towers. But the year prior to 911, they had something like a three million dollar contract. Um, research and development with the U.S. Defense Department, um, the U.S. Army, I think it was. And, you know, I tried to contact this company and ask them, uh, I spoke to the president of the company, what was the nature of your research and development that you did with the U.S. military in the year 2000? And they refused to answer any of these questions. And this was a man who even denied that his company had done any work in the World Trade Center, although it was reported in um, engineering news and, and report, engineering news and report, I think it's the name of the magazine. On September 13th, it was reported that his company had done extensive asbestos, asbestos abatement work in the Twin Towers. He denied that too. And what is Urban Moving Systems, and what were its employees doing on 
Oh, that's a very good question. Urban Relief Systems is a, a small company run out of a little warehouse in Weehawken, New Jersey, which is just across the water from the uh, Twin Towers. And I visited that place. It's under a bridge. It's a really not a very serious-looking office. Um, but what happened on 911 is that the um, uh, five Israelis who were picked up, um, you know, jubilating and celebrating and flicking their lighters with the Twin Towers behind them. You see, they were photographing each other with, uh, the Twin Towers burning in the background, and uh, they were flicking their lighters like people do at football games and stuff to show their approval. And a woman oversaw them doing this and called the uh, New Jersey police, and they were arrested. And they were arrested with, uh, you know, box cutters and a truck, a van that's, that uh, uh, tested positive for explosives, and uh, they had been in the area of 911 um, just before the attacks. And, and they said, you know, when they were arrested, they said, oh, you know, officer, we're, we're Israelis, we're not your problem, the Palestinians are your problem. Well, it turns out that these five Israelis um, worked for urban movie systems in Weehawken, and two of them were known to law enforcement to uh, be Israeli intelligence agents, um, the Kurtzberg brothers. And these people were held in uh, confinement in, 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 in Brooklyn, and they failed, they refused to take lie detector tests, and then finally when they did take lie detector tests, they failed the detector tests, but they were eventually sent back to Israel after about eight weeks or so. Um, what's interesting, though, is when they got back to Israel, three of them appeared on TV, national TV in Israel, and they, they told the Israeli audience in plain Hebrew that, uh, you know, um, our mission was to document the events, and, and, and that's what they were clearly doing. Um, but the question wasn't asked, uh, who sent you? But this was a clear indication. These five Israelis, these dancing Israelis, we call them, um, and, their, and their statements about being there to document the event uh, are another evidence that showing that the uh, certain Israelis were um, very much uh, forewarned about what was going to happen on 911. And what has Andreas von Bülow, former head of the parliamentary commission that oversaw the financing of German intelligence, what did he have to say about the events of 9-11? Oh, um, he was very good. I, I came to Germany in November of 2001 after Thanksgiving, and I met with Andreas von Bülow. And he was very, uh, uh, he told me straight up that he thought that it was a Mossad operation. Um, and I reported that, and he was a little bit surprised because in Germany, um, even if he said that, no German newspaper would print that. It's sort of a uh, taboo. But I printed it. It was published in my article. And what he told me was very interesting because he, he explained to me how such an operation works. In my book, Solving 9-11, The Deception Changed the World, I have this little quote from Ian Fleming, the guy who wrote uh, all the Bond books. And, and he wrote in Thunderball, he said, a plot of this magnitude and audacity could only have been conceived under faultless cover and down to the smallest detail. Well, that's the thing, is that, is that 9-11 was, was planned, um, you know, over a very, very long period. But, but as von Bülow told me, um, there are basically three levels to such an attack. There is the architectural level. Those are the people who plan the event primarily for the purpose of affecting public opinion. Then there's the manager level, the people who, you know, are kind of the bosses to make sure that the work gets done. Then there's the working level. And the working level is often part of the deception. For example, the working level in this case would be the 19 Arabs and the people who are actually involved in the terrorism. 
And you see, in the case of the 19 Arabs, in a false flag terror operation like this, that's about as far as you're supposed to understand. You see 19 Arabs hijacking planes, the planes flying the buildings. The guilty are the Arabs. But you don't, you don't see the levels behind. You don't see the management level, the people who, who are guiding them and, and running them, nor do you see the, the architectural level. Those are the people who are plotting the whole thing um, you know, for the purpose of carrying out and changing public opinion. Because 9-11 was basically carried out to change American public opinion in such a way that the United States would uh, you know, send its troops over to the Middle East on, a, on an open-ended campaign like they are now. If Andreas von Bülow uh, thought that the Mossad uh, was behind the events of 9-11, uh, most people think of Israel as a junior partner of the U.S. Now, how did he see it? Well, uh, we didn't get into those details, but he thought that based on you know um, his, his, his knowledge of, of such things, um, that, that the Mossad... Um, was the most likely uh, entity behind it. But now it's important to understand that, that when we talk about the Mossad, when we talk about Israeli intelligence, you know, we have to, we have to ask the question, um, what is Israel and, and what is Zionism? Because the, um, the Israelis and the Israeli intelligence actually operates kind of like the attack dog for the people that are behind Zionism. And that is to say that the, the Israelis, even if you look at the highest level, like Shimon Peres, the president of the country, or Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, or Ehud Barak, the defense minister, these men have you know, power in Israel, but there are people behind them. And, and there are people behind the state of Israel who are, um, like I said, the architectural level people that you don't see. And, and, and to understand that, one has to understand that Zionism and Israel is a country that was basically created by secret societies, like the B'nai B'rith and B'nai Moshe. And these were, these were entities that were funded by the Rothschilds to um, cultivate a feeling of uh, nationalism among the Jews in the Eastern Europe and in the Pale of Settlement. And these people were then you know, used almost like fodder and sent to Israel um, to realize this, this uh, Jewish nationalism. But the Israelis themselves are not the, um, um, the highest level players in such an event. There are people behind them, and these are the, the big financiers and the secret societies that control the state of Israel and that very much to a large degree control American politics and U.S. media. Well, I guess you're referring to sort of a, a, a financial intelligence uh, elite, something like that, on a global scale, perhaps. Yeah, well, it's, 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 I'll use this quote that um, got Professor Jones into so much trouble. And, and, and he was asked on uh, National Public Radio in Utah on September 5, 2006. He was asked, this is the man that discovered the, the nanothermite. He was asked who was behind it, uh, who was behind, you know, the 911. He said... There is a much larger group behind these attacks, which is the international banking cartel, which controls, controls trillions of dollars and which has an interest in controlling countries in the Middle East which are not under their control. Um, now, that's what he said, but that comment was jumped on by uh, a couple people, 
and and they said that he's speaking in code. When he says international banking cartel, they said he's speaking code and it's anti-Semitic. And and he was suspended from teaching the next week. I hadn't heard that aspect of the story before. That's that's interesting. Well, it's it, it, it's interesting because it's also very true. Like I said, if you if you look at the the way that they're redrawing the map of the Middle East, they have a plan to balkanize parts of the Middle East. That is to uh, break up countries into its ethnic statelets, like they did to the Balkans, like they did to Yugoslavia. Um, you know, they broke up Yugoslavia into seven seven statelets, I think it is. And the Rothschild family virtually owns one of them. That's the beautiful state of Montenegro. Um, you know, Montenegro is, is, is run by Nathan Rothschild. He, he, he's the one who controls the coastline there and many of the mineral assets of that country. And he was developing those mineral assets and that, that casino operation that he's building down there. He did that with, uh, he was doing that with the son of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. The, the son that's still alive and, and living down in Niger or Mali, wherever he is. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Bolin. Today's show, 9-11 and the Politics of War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You've traveled extensively through the world, particularly Europe and the Middle East, and in fact, you've lived in Israel on more than one occasion. How did you come to live in Israel? Well, I um, after high school, in high school, I went on a bicycling trip uh, with the youth hostels, and I and spent two months in the summer of, after my junior year um, all across Europe bicycling. And I really thought it was very interesting, and uh, it appealed to me more than going to college directly after 12 years of school. So what I did is I went, um, I worked for Lifeguard in the Chicago area, and then I went to Europe vagabonding, um, much to the um, consternation of my mother. Um, I went traveling and I, I went down, you know, to Greece when it got cold and over to Turkey and then uh, wound up going over to Afghanistan. And uh, I got as far as Tehran, Iran. And uh, then I heard about the opportunity to go to Israel and pick oranges and bananas on a kibbutz. So I decided that, that sounded more appealing. So I went, I went back down through Turkey to Syria and Jordan and crossed the, crossed Alambay Bridge and went to the uh, kibbutz in the Jordan Valley and settled down there, and spent uh, I spent a lot of time in Israel. I, I I went back and stayed often for times, uh, periods of three months or six months at a time, and I would live the winter times in Norway, where I studied Zionism and I studied Hebrew and and Egyptian language and and uh, history of Israel and Zionism. And then I would cycle down in the springtime to Israel, and then I'd work as a lifeguard down there. And, you know, I, I, I had friends, and I felt very much at home on the kibbutz, and I learned about Zionism from people who had actually been, you know, first-generation pioneers, these, these older people from Lithuania and, and Poland who had come as children to Palestine as, as Zionists. And so, you know, I, I learned about Zionism from Zionists. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've... I had I had sympathy. I, I I had a lot of sympathy, and I supported. It. I thought Israel was a pretty pretty good idea, although I was always aware of the gross injustice that had happened. Because like when I crossed the bridge from Jordan, when you went in those days, when you came across and went through Jericho and went up the the road, you went through a huge uh, area of abandoned houses, kind of like adobe mud house mud huts, 
but as far as the eye can see. And that was one of these temporary refugee camps from one of the wars, um, and, and it was now completely abandoned. And anybody who travels in the Middle East, you know, comes across Palestinian refugee camps and, uh, and knows Palestinians. And so, I, I, you know, from the very beginning, I was aware that there was a very um, serious uh, conflict in the region. And uh, in those days, that was in the 70s, it was uh, much easier to travel and talk to people in the Middle East than it is today. Will, what did you find out about Zionism when you lived in Israel? What are the origins of Zionism as an ideology? Right. Well, that's a very good question, because um, Zionism is, is uh, an ideology which is supported by virtually every member of the U.S. Congress. And uh, our president supports it. And every president we've had for a long time has supported the state of Israel and Zionism. And it seems like it's the, uh, the accepted religion in the uh, U.S. political establishment. Yet, it's very, it's very poorly understood. I mean, you know, if you go to an American campus, a university, you can take courses on the history of communism or the history of capitalism or the history of African nationalism or what have you. But you will not find a course of studies on Zionism. And there's a reason for that, because if one studies the history of Zionism, one will discover that it's a very, very sordid and dark history. As I said, Zionism was, was basically pushed onto the Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. It was basically pushed on them by the secret societies, like B'nai Moshe. B'nai Moshe was a secret society that was created in Odessa in 1889. And it was, it was uh, you know, closed only to certain men were allowed to join. And that this society then created a group called the uh, Lovers of Zion. And these were the founding pioneers of, of, of you know, Zionism, like people like um, Ahad Ham, his name is he's Mr. Ginsburg, I think is his real name. Um, and, and these, Pinsker was another one. These are the people who, who um, really conceived the idea and, and promoted the idea among these communities. And they went to the rabbis of the communities like in Bialystok, Poland, and, and throughout that pale of settlement, that region between you know, Germany and Russia, what's today Belarusia and Ukraine. And these communities provided um, the poor, basically often illiterate Jewish masses of people who were told that they had to, you know, revive the Jewish um, identity, revive the language. And these people were told that you are Hebrews, you need to speak Hebrew, and you need to go to live in the Hebrew homeland, and we're going to create that for you. And, and this, this created this... this uh, fervor of Zionism in the 1880s and 1890s, and these are the people who first went to Palestine. This is the first wave of, of Russian settlers, and they went to, to settlements that were built by the Rothschilds. For example, Rishon Letzion, that's the first, first in, in Zion. That's what it means. That was a settlement that was created by the Rothschilds, and, and by the time that Edmund Rothschild died, he had, he had settled something like 35 settlements he had created across Palestine, all paid for, all developed with Rothschild money, and, and his, his secret societies that he was funding in Eastern Europe were providing the human material to populate these, this area. So when you go to Israel, 
and, and, and if you, you meet the older people, you'll find that a lot of the people that went to Israel um, were either fanatics, very fervent Zionists that came from that region, or there were people who had nothing to do with Zionism at all. They, they, were, they were caught up in a bad situation, whether it was in World War II in, in one of those countries or, or in um, Iraq or Yemen. For some reason, they wound up being put on airplanes and flown to Israel. For example, the, the, the Operation Magic Carpet, it was called, I think it was in 1949, the Mossad secretly moved basically the entire Jewish community from Yemen to Israel. Now, these people weren't Zionists. They, 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 had, they didn't have a Zionist uh, thought in their head. But they were, you know, they were, there was a deal was made, and these people were taken out of Yemen and put on mag, uh, secret, secret flights. And what's interesting is that um, Michael Shertoff, his mother, was one of the Mossad agents that ran this operation. I believe you write in your book that it was in the year of 2005 that you met with uh, Dr. Stephen Jones, the, the physicist yeah. in, in Utah, and, and another uh, scientist that had been yeah. uh, studying the dust of the World Trade Center, and that it was after this meeting when you returned home to the um, uh, suburbs of Chicago uh, that in the summer of 2006, you were arrested and charged with assaulting undercover police. Uh, describe what happened. What went on there? Right. Well, let's, let's start from the beginning. Um, in 2005, I think it was, uh, Professor Jones wrote to me and asked me about my reports of uh, uh, the evidence of molten steel, molten iron found in the bottom of the World Trade Center, because I had written about that in the summer of 2002. Because what happened was when they removed all the rubble from the World Trade Center, they found at the very basement level, you know, where the bedrock um, of Manhattan met the World Trade Center, they found pools of literally molten iron. And, and that is iron that was still in the molten state. This is weeks and weeks after the uh, uh, World Trade Center fell. They found this molten steel. And the people that I spoke to, like uh, Mr. Tully, who was involved in the removal of this, and Mr. Loiseau, Mark Loiseau, they confirmed that this, this is what they found there. Well, Professor Jones then began, you know, really digging into this and trying to find out what would explain this molten iron, and uh, thermite was the most likely uh, culprit, uh, because thermite creates molten iron when it reacts. It's an aluminothermic reaction, they call it, when aluminum and iron mix uh, they, they create iron oxide, or they create uh, molten iron and aluminum oxide. This is a white smoke. Well, uh, I went out to see Professor Jones in the spring of 2006 when I came back to the States. Um, at that time, it was, uh, I was very reluctant to go to my home because we had been um, under surveillance by informants for the FBI, and we, that was why we weren't living there. Um, so I spent a lot of time... Um, in Utah with Professor Jones, in Colorado with Ellen Mariani, and, and out in California. But I took Professor Jones' research and his, his ideas about thermite, and I went to California, to the University of California at Davis, where I went to school, and I met with the man who had sampled, who had collected the, um, he had collected the smoke. When the smoke blew from the burning pile of, of the World Trade Center, basically from September 11th, well, he started in October, beginning of October, until Christmas, of 2001, there were these fires that raged beneath the pile. 
and they created this thin blue smoke. And whenever this thin blue smoke blew northwards and went into the, the device, the drum device that measures the uh, smoke, um, they were able to analyze what the smoke consisted of. And they found that the smoke consisted of huge amounts of what are called nanoparticles. These are extremely, extremely small particles, about one-tenth of one micron. It's like a, a millionth of a meter in size, extremely small. And, and I asked Professor Cahill, Thomas Cahill, who had done this work at the University of California at Davis for the aerosol division, I asked him what, what could explain the, the, the presence of all these nano-sized particles in the smoke. And he said, only temperatures hotter than the boiling point of the metal involved. So that confirmed that these fires beneath the World Trade Center were extremely hot. I mean, we're talking hotter than the boiling temperature of iron. And, and this boiling iron was cooking off these particles, and they were going into the smoke. And this is what the people of lower Manhattan were inhaling for, uh, you know, basically three months. If they were living near the pile or working on the pile, uh, they had a good chance of inhaling some of these uh, tiny particles, and these are extremely dangerous. Let's put it at that. Well, um, when, I, when I met Thomas Cahill and he told me that, and, and the evidence showed that these fires were so very hot, then it, it became quite clear in my mind that we were talking about uh, thermite, that massive amounts of thermite were still cooking off beneath the World Trade Center. And... Uh, um, I took this information, and, you know, I had radio shows and talked about it. And uh, my children wanted to go home. They had been away from home for about six months. Uh, we'd been in Europe. So we went back home, and within about a week of our arrival at home, um, these undercover police came to my house in response to a 911 call. Um, I had called 911 because this car with uh, uh, three heavily armed men was driving around my house for two days in a row, uh, with no identification, with no uh, markings of any sort. It was just three men who were, uh, you know, wearing body armor and were cruising around my house. And I thought this was very odd. So, you know, to be on the safe side, I thought, I called 911 and I wanted to know what's going on here because I, I was afraid that somebody was going to, you know, attack me. Well, what this group, of, what this car did is they hijacked the call, the 911 call, and they came to my house. And uh, they came up the driveway. They were met by my wife and my, my little eight-year-old daughter. And uh, when I looked out the window and saw these, these same three men with their car in front of my house, I, I ran outside and I asked them, what agency are you from? You know, what are you doing here? Who are you? And within about 15 seconds, I was uh, um, flat on the ground with two men sitting on top of me. And they put a taser on my back and they tasered me while I was in handcuffs, actually. Um, and while one man was kneeling on my temple of my head and the other man was on my back, they just put the taser gun against my back and, and tasered me. And in the process, I wound up getting a fractured uh, elbow as well. They took me away from my home and I asked them, why are you arresting me? And they, they didn't tell me. Um, I've written about it extensively in my book. And I was taken to a, a, a cell in Hoffman Estates and I was uh, treated very badly. Uh, I got no medical attention, and finally, in the middle of the night, I was released. Um, my brother came and, and put down $100, and I was released. But I still didn't know what I was being held for. And then finally, a, uh, a very fabricated police report came out, and I was charged with assaulting uh, police officers and resisting arrest. 
and I fought it in the court. I fought it for about 10 months. I declared that I was innocent of this because these men had not identified themselves to me. Furthermore, I hadn't assaulted anybody, and nobody arrested me, so there was no arrest to be uh, resisting to. And I was found guilty of both counts, misdemeanors, in June, early June of 2007. And rather than um, putting my family through any more of this uh, abuse, um, we left my home in Chicago in June and uh, went to Europe. And I've been in Europe ever since. Well, we started out speaking of uh, 9-11 as an unsolved crime. Could you speak briefly about the ramifications, the fallout from this event? I would say, I would say that, um, that 9-11 is a crime that wasn't meant to be solved because had it been solved, um, we would not have this war on terror, nor would we have these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that's really important to understand that 9-11 has changed America. They have succeeded in changing America. They have succeeded in bringing the United States into these um, illegal wars of aggression in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we have seen our, our civil rights severely curtailed in the United States, all based on an unsolved crime. Christopher Boleyn, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Christopher Boleyn. Today's show has been 9-11 and the Politics of War. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He has lived and traveled extensively throughout the world, including the Middle East, where he studied the region's history and languages before earning a degree in history from the University of California with an emphasis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, and Solving 9-11, The Articles. Visit his website at www.bolin.com. That's B-O-L-L-Y-N dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yarrow Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org.